So t- tell me a little bit about how you prioritize these pieces of legislation. It's a, it's, a, it's a complicated process for sure. What I would generally say we do is we look at some a particular topic and we decide if that topic is going to positively affect the majority, the vast majority of the, of the stakeholders, the industry. So a really big one for us right now is estate taxes. And the reason for that is because so many family farms are inherited that we really need some relief on estate taxes because we won't be able to people to be able to maintain their family farms. And that cuts across all sectors. Doesn't matter if you're in racing or whatever breeder discipline you're in. So that's one of our top ones. I mentioned immigration before because we all need those workers. So we really work a lot on that. What's your name and what do you do for a living? Well, first, let me say thanks, Gideon, and thanks to the Horse People Podcast Nation for inviting (laughs) me to speak today. Um, I'm Julie Broadway. I'm president at the American Horse Council in Washington, D.C. That's awesome. Uh, Thank you, Julie, for being on the podcast. And I'm uh, I'm really excited for this conversation we have set up. I know it's going to be a good one. I am curious. Uh, for the folks who might not know about AHC, the American Horse Council, like what, how do you describe it? What is it? Yeah, tell us a little bit about it. Well, it, it's a really broad and deep subject. The American Horse Council was formed in 1969 uh, to represent the entire horse industry, uh, all breeds, all discipline, all uh, professions, all walks of life. If you are touched by the equine uh, industry or the equine community, or you're just an equestrian uh, and part of that community, uh, we represent you in Washington. We work on legislative and regulatory issues at the federal level. And we also take on a lot of different industry initiatives uh, because we're sort of that umbrella organization that represents all of the various aspects of the industry. It's not uncommon for the industry to come up with an initiative or a program and they say, hmm, where should that program live? And they inevitably come to the American Horse Council and say, hey, this is going to affect all breeds and all disciplines. So why don't you guys uh, host this or sponsor it? So we do a lot of those kinds of initiatives. And I tell people all the time that we are essential for the long-term sustainability and success of the industry because we're the ones in Washington going up on the hill, fighting the fight with uh, whether it be congressional members or those types of regulatory agencies, um, trying to make our case for why we need the things that we need and sometimes trying to fight unintended consequences. There'll be a piece of legislation that comes out and somebody meant something good in the process of trying to describe what they were trying to do, it's going to have some repercussions on us. So we do a lot of education up on the Hill, spend a lot of time with uh, congressional staffers who most aren't from an agriculture background, especially not a horse background. So they don't even understand what all the challenges and the issues are. So that's a, a big piece of what we do day in and day out is going, making appointments, going into those offices, going into those agencies and trying to make certain they understand how broad and how deep the industry is. It's really Funny, Gideon, that when I say there are 7.2 million horses in the U.S. and we contribute $122 billion a year to the national economy, we have about 2 million horse owners in the country, almost every congressional office, eyes light up and they'll say, wow, that's a lot of voters in my state. 
you know, and I'm like, yeah. So we really want you to hear what we have to say, because from their point of view, those are constituents that they need to hear their voice. And so that's what we're we're up, what we're up there doing day in and day out. Wow. That sounds like a crazy uh, fun thing to do is you, you get to just talk to people about horses and how important they are and how fun it is to be around horses. Um, right. Like, I mean, that's that might be really simplified, but at the end of the day, you know, it's like you get to chat with all these people and teach them about horses. It's, it's awesome. Uh, it's a, it's a goal of mine to do that here on the podcast too. So, uh, I think it's interesting also, um, myself and my staff are all horse people. We all have a passion for horses, but more importantly, we're subject matter experts in the things we work on. So my government affairs person, she is an expert on policy and legislative work. So she not only educates about horses and how great they are, but she can take the terminology and the vernacular that we speak in the horse world and translate that into something that a staffer or a congressional member can understand in terms of policy. Um, and that's really essential because, you know, when we start talking about something, they they don't have a good understanding of what that means at all. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure like when they hear $122 billion contributed to the U.S. economy on like every year, they're, that's a number they did not expect. I think it's a number that a lot of people don't expect. But when you think about race horses, you think about um, like the dude ranches, you think about people just that have horses and everything that's competitive around horses, like it starts to add up, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, it does. And, you know, this year we're doing a new national economic impact study. And that's oh. one of the biggest challenges with the study is to try to reach all those little segments of the industry. So we typically say we have racing, we have uh, shows and competition, um, and we have um, recreational riders. And then the last group is called the working group. And the working group are horses that are used for equine-assisted therapy. They are horses used on dude ranches. They are horses used for packing. Like if you go to the Grand Canyon and you want to take a ride down into the canyon, you, you hire a packer to take you down. Yeah. Um, there are horses that are used by mounted units, whether they're mounted police or mounted military units, those kinds of things. And so this thing goes, like I said at the beginning, wide and deep. There's a lot of different segments in the, in the industry. So when we do a study like this, that's the challenge is to kind of get all those mobilized and to get them to respond to the survey that we're doing. So we capture all of the stuff that, that goes into this thing. Um, I, I say farriers and veterinarians and equine uh, attorneys and equine CPAs and show organizers. And the list just goes on and on and on of the various different stakeholders we have that we're trying to say, okay, one of the best tools we have to really open people's eyes about the significance of our industry is this economic impact study. So we really need you guys to to lean in and, and complete the survey so we can capture all of that information. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm coming at it from the polo world. So if it, it didn't even make the, the list of, of things that you're thinking about, can you imagine like how much, how deep and how like wide this gets, you know? Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and polo is a whole nother thing because you guys know um, sometimes polo teams don't own their horses. They are horses that, you know, you guys use for your polo matches. So that's a whole different twist to this. You're talking about not just people who own horses, but people who lease horses or people who, you know, use horses in a number of different ways. 
Yeah, totally. Wow, that's so interesting. And I'm glad you brought up the impact study because that's something um, I was really curious about. The last one was in 2017. And this one, uh, when is it set to come out? Like, can you talk a little bit about how how much the, the industry has changed, like the things that you've found so far? Well, so um, we, we launched the survey the 1st of April, and it'll run till the end of September. Uh, and we are looking for results probably the first part of November. It, so we'll give them a month, the consultants, to crunch those numbers and come to some key conclusions, if you will. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting. Uh, we're asking a lot of new questions this time around, trying to understand some things that we didn't know in 2017. Um, I jokingly told somebody when we did the study in 2017, from then until now, I have a list that I keep of all the questions that people call and ask me um, that I don't have the answers to. And so I take those questions and I give them to the consultants this time and say, okay, this time I want to be able to answer these questions, common questions. How many horses are kept in pastures versus kept in stalls? We don't know. Um, How many total volunteers are there in the equine industry? Oh, gosh, wow, we don't have a clue. Let's let's ask that question. Um, We're asking people about um, workforce. So we use a lot of foreign workers in our space, whether they're grooms or hot walkers or whatever role they might play. Mm-hmm. And we're always trying to campaign to get more visas so we can have foreign workers to, to do these jobs for us. And the question we're asking this time around is, how many workers do you need and how many workers do you have? So we're mm-hmm. trying to identify that gap between what we need and what we have. So we can use that number to go back up on the hill and talk to people who are working on the visa program to say, look how how big the need is versus what we have. Could you help us with some visa legislation that would help us get more workers in here, like returning worker visa exemptions and things like that? Wow. So just this laundry list of questions that that we're asking this time around. Uh, It's going to be very interesting to sort of to see some of the results. Um, I can tell you right now, we've got, um, I think my last count was somewhere in the neighborhood of about eight to 10,000 responses. And we're about the halfway mark through the survey. So wow. we're really beating the bushes right now. And if your listeners are curious, we're offering incentives this time. So oh. you can win some serious prizes <laughs> just really? completing the survey. Yeah. You can win uh, a John Deere Gator. You Whoa. can win one year of feed for one horse from Purina, one year of feed for one horse from uh, Cargill or the folks at at there. Uh, You can win some educational content from Texas A&M's equine program, some online content. You can win some uh, some free books. Um, There's just all kinds of stuff out there that people, all they have to do is complete the survey, throw their email address in there, and we're going to randomly draw some winners and, and give away some cool stuff. Wow, that's awesome. That's really smart too. So it's it sounds like um, right now one of the biggest challenges you're working on is getting folks to sign up to the survey. Yes, indeed. Um, what ends up happening is uh, a lot of people are very ambitious and they want to do the survey. Uh, and we try to tell them at the start, here are the things you should have at your fingertips before you start the survey, because there's a lot of questions in there. And if they don't have that stuff handy, then it's, it gets frustrating because you're trying to answer stuff and find things and all that kind of stuff. So we try to get people really prepared before they start the survey, because if they are prepared and they start the survey, it goes pretty quickly and pretty smoothly. But if they're mm-hmm. if they're kind of looking around for the bits and pieces that they need, then they get frustrated and then they opt out and they don't come back. So we're trying to prevent 
that from happening. Got it. Got it. Wow. Okay. Well, if anybody's listening uh, and you own a horse or you're part of the horse industry, you better, if you're, if you're listening, you better <laughs> fill out your survey, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, one of the other things I'm doing this time around Gideon is I'm really going after some um, communities that we didn't get in the 2017. So we're really trying to get some feedback from the Mennonites and the Amish. Uh, we really want to get some answers from some of the Native Americans. So we're going um, to do some work with the tribal councils on that. Um, so we, we're really trying to get into some of those underrepresented communities, some of those groups that last time, for whatever reason, didn't respond because we'd really like to be able to say how robust and, like I said, um, and how diverse um, our entire stakeholder group is. Yeah, totally. Wow. No, that's that's awesome. So you, you have to you have to think I'm thinking to myself, like, one, when you were a kid, like, did you think you would end up on the hill? advocating for your love for horses like what what how how did you go from you know wanting to be whatever you wanted to be when to to now being the president of the American Horse Council so this is a really interesting journey and I'll try to keep it short so like most teenagers I kept changing my mind about what I really wanted my career to be I thought I really wanted to go into physical therapy uh, and then I went off to college and decided that I really wanted to do something in the school of business instead um, and one summer, um, I did an internship as an industrial engineer, and that completely opened my eyes. And I'm like, oh, man, this is really what I'm passionate about. So I spent um, right after college, I spent about oh five plus years as an industrial engineer uh, doing all kinds of interesting work for that. Uh, and then I was a management consultant for a number of years, traveled all over the place, did some interesting consulting work there. Um, and then I, I went uh, into leadership role at a at a large corporation for a number of years. But the whole time I'm doing all this, I've kind of got horses on the side. They were my they were my hobby. And I went back and got my my MBA. Um, and when I did that, I thought, you know, I've done enough in the for-profit sector. Let's go do something that combines my passion for horses with my business skills. And so I went to Duke University and I graduated with an advanced nonprofit leadership degree um, at that point. And really threw my name in. I'd done some local horse club stuff and that kind of thing. So I've been around the block a little bit, Um, but threw my name in for a job at a breed association as their executive director. And I went there and I was there uh, almost 10 years. And the whole time I was there, I was very involved with the American Horse Council. And the president prior to me was a wonderful gentleman named Jay Hickey. And when Jay announced he was going to retire, I called a friend and I said, you know, this sounds really interesting. Um, I had done a little bit of advocacy work when I was younger, working in the for-profit sector. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, mm, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of cool. And I knew enough about the organization to sort of get, get my thoughts collected around it. And again, same sort of situation, threw my name in the hat for this, for this job uh, and was really delighted when they asked me if I would move to DC and do this. And it's been a lot of fun. I tell people my days are very different. Um, you come in with a plan of, you know, what you want to get accomplished and the phone rings and it's somebody calling saying, uh, Hey, I've got a question. Can you connect me with somebody else who can help me with this? And it can range from somebody saying, um, my child has special needs and I'd like to get them in a therapeutic writing program. Can you recommend somewhere near me that I can go to somebody who's calling and saying, 
the local um, community um, is redoing the roads in front of my farm, and they're flying a drone over my pastures to measure you know, distances for the road construction. But the drone is upsetting my horses, and I'm wondering what are the rules about drone use over private property? Oh, okay. We call the Federal Aviation Administration, and let's find out. So, wow. I mean, the, the questions are just really, really all over the place. Um, I had a guy that called this week, and he said, I'd like to know how many thoroughbred racetracks are owned by Native Americans. Well, I didn't know the answer to that one, so off we go. And so it's a constant sort of research project that you're that you're doing for when people call and ask some of these questions. Yeah, wow. That's that's incredible. So that's kind of like what it does for the constituents when when you're going into like the offices of Cong- the Congress people um and you know advocating for for the horse world like what are the kinds of questions that those folks have and like how how do those conversations go between like what do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I know exactly what you're saying. Okay, so great. It, yeah. It's really interesting. So we first always lead with, let's talk about, let's define who the industry is, who the players are, and all the things that are there. Um, oftentimes, some of our issues are shared issues with other livestock species. So the conversation is around, okay, who are your your coalition partners on this issue. So if I'm talking about maybe something that's got to do with zoning or land use or something like that, it might be a conversation saying us and the Farm Bureau Federation are partnering on this. Or it might be a conversation around something that has to do with uh, sports and competition. Okay, so we're part of a, a coalition that's all professional sports teams, Major League Baseball, NFL, uh, wow. basketball, uh, yeah. golf, you know, you name it, and us. And so we're talking about, okay, what are the issues that we all, so when we go into an office, we're always trying to talk about who our partners are, why we have a, you know, we have a consensus around what our position is. And a lot of times the staffers can be pretty savvy and they'll say, well, but what about these folks? They're opposed to what you're doing. And so then that's a conversation around, okay, here's why we have this position and here's what we understand to be their concerns about it. And we're trying to sort of navigate that conversation to figure out how we can come to some common ground that will make everybody comfortable and how we can we can move forward in a way that, you know, sort of resolves any of the concerns that people have. Wow. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Um, is there like what's what's the biggest state that is responsible for like the most amount of horses? Is it California? Or so Texas? there are our top three states are Texas, California, and Florida. Oh, nice. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and okay. I would say, um, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I think Texas is the is the largest, but it's not too far behind or ahead of California and Florida, too. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, when, when I think about, like, where the horses are in the world, like, those are the three states that come to mind, so... Um, you know, speaking about these these complex issues and finding a, a kind of the the great compromise, I am so curious. And this is a question that my friends and I always talk about: is the wild mustangs, like the dichotomy between wild mustangs being the spirit of the West and having this like majestic feel, and like you know, if you're a horse person, a mustang is is something special. Two, on the opposite side the environmental impacts that they might be causing on public lands. So that's a conversation and a whole podcast in of itself, but I'm curious, maybe we can, we can chat a little bit about it from your perspective and and the AHC's perspective as well. 
Well, um, the AHC doesn't really have a firm position on wild horses. We mostly deal with domestic horses. Um, but while the wild horse and burrow issue is a very complicated issue, we we very much um, understand people's passion for that American imagination, that untamed frontier spirit, you know, that yeah. the Mustangs sort of represent. But yet, as as the country has begun to um, lose its ruralness, if you will, if that's the right word, as we've had more urbanization, um, there's there's less and less places for these horses to just roam freely. And when they get into smaller spaces, you bring up the issue. It does have some environmental impacts. Um, and I've seen a number of presentations on this. And my concern also is about the welfare of the horses, because not only are they looking for food in places where there's not a whole lot of green to eat, um, so they're 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 very thin and sometimes they don't have access to water and yet they're roaming around this land and in some cases because of the capacity for the land to hold the number of horses it does cause those environmental concerns so it's this ongoing as you said dichotomy this this give and take that we're trying to find if you look up the bureau of land management right now there are twice or three times as many horses on federal lands than the land was designed to hold capacity wise. And so when you see images of how skinny the horses are and, and just how undernourished they appear and, and there's not a lot of vegetation and the land looks very rugged because they've trod on it a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it makes it really tough to make, you know, those decisions about what's best for the horses and what's best for the land. And also, in some cases, like in Texas, you have concerns from um, landowners who are in adjacent lands because the horses don't know any boundaries. They go over into his cattle farm or into somebody else's yard, you know, for that matter. So there's lots of of stakeholders to take into account when you think about this one. Yeah, totally. I imagine like the conclusion that we always think about is like, well, horses feel like pets, right, for a lot of people. (laughs) And I'm sure it's like that's that's a huge um, concern or talking point. It's like people have this emotional connection to horses Mm -hmm. where they might not with cattle or, um, you know, other sorts of livestock. Yeah. And I tell people, this is one of my leading arguments when I present at conferences is we spend a lot of our time at the American Horse Council ensuring that horses are defined as, as livestock. And the reason is because Um, If they were considered pets or companion animals, we would not have some of the same protections that that we have as livestock. For example, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has a responsibility to um, ensure herd health because we're a livestock. If we were a pet or a companion animal, that would not be their responsibility. So how would that play out? Um, Equine liability laws would change. Um, husbandry practices would be different. I mean, you just stop and think about the fact that if suddenly horses were reclassified as pets or companion animals, there's a lot of ripples that occur with that. Wow. Can you maybe, uh, okay, so there, you mentioned a few of those ripples. The I think the, the, the question that I'm thinking about is rather not if they like if they turn into companion and pest animals, but like because people think of them that way, it affects the way that they might vote or it affects the way that they might 
think through that the the issue of wild mustangs right like that has to be mm-hmm. a thing. yeah that, um, that's exactly true um i, I think sometimes uh, people um have a difficult time uh, distinguishing between their pet that lives in the house with them and their horse that lives in the pasture behind the house <laughs> right right no that's so true and um of course it makes sense for for horses to be uh, considered livestock i think if it, it, it benefits the the it benefits horse people as a whole more than it takes away from it right right yeah wow. but there there are um cases where we get approached by groups who are struggling um with horses being defined as livestock um and believe it or not that comes into play um more so with um service animals so there are you know miniature horses that are um, used sometimes as service animals and they make great service animals but um it also creates some challenges for them um, as far as housing is concerned. Um, yeah. So they have certain rules about what can be uh, live or reside within a housing community. Yeah. Um, and horses are considered livestock. So that's not supposed to be the case, but yet they're using a mini as a companion slash service animal. And that's a whole different challenge. Yeah, totally. I mean, it reminds me of the reason that the, uh, the like all, all the airlines are cracking down on the emotional support animals there's like an emotional support duck and an emotional support like anything right so yeah uh, the, the peacock was the one that got that really so much talk made the peacock right, the <laughs> <laughs> um wow so let, i'm i'm curious taking a step back when you were president of the morgan horse association right like um that's kind of what got you into the position to be the, the president of ahc um What's so special about Morgan horses? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, your audience can't see behind me in my home office, uh, but I grew up, I started off uh, taking riding lessons on a quarter horse, um, but I had a cousin who was into horses and her horse of choice was a Morgan. And so that's who I went to for advice. Like I'd like yeah. to really get more seriously into horses. So she got me started with Morgans. And the thing that I love about that breed is that they are so versatile and they're so people friendly and they're, they're really easy keepers. We like to say that kind of thing. So um, they're, they're great all around um, horses. You can do just about any, anything you want to with a Morgan horse, yeah. <laughs> uh, which, which makes it, makes it a lot of fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, like seeing the picture behind you and the statues, like I had to ask the question. I was like, you must be a uh, Morgan horse. Yeah. Person. Well, it's really funny. When I started in Morgan's, um, I started off, of course, doing some some riding. Um, then I ended up, I had a broodmare and I stood a stallion at stud and I did a little bit of that. And then I, then I did some competitive riding. So did some horse shows. Um, did some some driving too, some pleasure driving and those kinds of things. Lots of trail riding. So I've I've done lots and lots of different things with my Morgans over the years, and it's always been you know really rewarding and satisfying. Yeah, that's awesome. Is there a, is there a favorite discipline of yours? Like, is there something that when you go out and ride, like you think this is what I want to do? Well, that's a tough question because I like it all. That's just the bottom line. Um, But, you know, I've done a lot of trail riding, which is always really relaxing and and enjoyable. Um, But I've had some fun showing, too. Um, I've I've had a classic pleasure horse and I've had an English pleasure horse. um, And both of those are fun. Um, So lots of lots of different um, avenues that you can you can pursue. (laughs) You know, I'm thinking out loud that um, if there's ever a senator or a congress person that's a 
you know, giving you a hard time about horses. All you have to do is take them out for a trail ride. Right. And then that's, that's all it takes to convince them. <laughs> yep, that, that, that is definitely the case. I will say to you that we have a piece of legislation that provides funding for veterans to take equine assisted services and therapies. And that all came about because representative Andy Barr of Kentucky went out to a facility where they gave, um, therapeutic riding lessons. And he was so moved with what he saw and how, enjoyable it was for the participants and how much they gained from the experience of bonding with the horse and doing some things like that. Um, but that's why he sponsored that piece of legislation. We didn't have to argue any further than that. You know, he was wow. there. <laughs> yeah, it's because I, I I mean, genuinely believe, and I'm sure a lot of folks listening genuinely believe that uh, horses do have like a really special place in everybody's heart. And uh, once, once you have the, you know, the gene or, or if you, if you get ex- exposure to the horse world and um you're open to it um and it'll change your life yeah i I will tell you this that i often have parents who say to me oh my child is interested in riding lessons and i'll say you definitely should do it there it's very rewarding and but i will also tell you there are two kinds of people i'm sorry to say folks but people that do it and they're hooked and this is it and then people will say no this this isn't for me if you're the parent of a child who gets hooked I'm really sorry because <laughs> it becomes an obsession. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, look, look at me now. Uh, I've been riding for 20 years, you know, and it's like the thing that's the one thing I've been doing for my entire life, Polly, that hasn't changed since I was young. And um, th- that's got to be there's got to be something crazy about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I can honestly say it doesn't matter where I go. When someone turns to me and says, oh, you know, what do you do for a living? And I say, well, you know, I work in the horse industry. And they they almost inevitably have a story to tell me about some experience they had. (laughs) Everybody always tells you, oh, I went riding when I was 10. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So kind of now taking a step forward, I'm curious, how how do you structure your years? Like, what are your goals for the next six months in 2023? Um, what are you looking forward to in the next coming years? Like how, how does this, um, how do you think about the goals of the American horse council as it, you know, relates to year every, every year? So, um, each year we identify key pieces of legislation that we'd really like to see move. And so we spend a lot of our time, um, thinking strategically about who might be our partners up on the Hill. What offices do we need to go into? There's a lot of freshman representatives and senators this time. So a lot of education to do you know, to try to get them to understand the issues. Um, But we measure our success based on what we can move legislatively or what we can move from a regulatory point of view. So um, it's not uncommon for us to have a conversation with somebody at the Environmental Protection Agency or the U.S. Department of Agriculture or any of those agencies, and they're working on something. I gave the example earlier of pyrethrin, which was the what's used in our fly spray. We've been working on that. Uh, right now, we're working on one that has to do with rodenticides. So there's some proposed changes for the application of rodenticides. So we've been working on that. Um, so those are those are our goals, is we take a look at all these issues and we see where we can try to move those as, as best we can. Um, sometimes there's legislation that we know we're not going to get through this Congress period. Mm-hmm. But if we can move the move the needle a little bit and get a little closer, then that means that the next time it's introduced, then we stand a pretty good chance of getting on some more sponsors and trying to move it a little further. So sometimes it's a strategy of not crossing the goal line, but getting pretty darn close. 
Yep. Yep. Sometimes you just got to get, you know, 10 yards at a time, get that first down mm-hmm. and get to the touchdown, right? It's not, it's not always about uh, throwing Hail Marys. That was a little football reference there. No, no, reason. but I was going to say my, my passion's baseball. So it's, you know, it's about getting that, that, uh, that, Next uh, base. death base. That's it. Yeah. Yep. yep. Um, wow. That, that's it's so interesting. Like, what, what do you find is most challenging about your, your day to day about your job in general? Like what's the most challenging piece of it? Mm, that's a tough question because there's lots of different challenges. Um, yeah. as you know, our industry is very, um, diverse. And we're full of passionate people. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that means it's hard to get consensus or coalesce around a solution or a strategy for something. So that's one of the challenges is to try to bring all this diversity together and try to find those common elements and see if we can't find a way to, to go forward. Um, so that's a challenge. I would say one of the other challenges as an organization is we're not a government-funded agency. And we don't have a checkoff program like the pork people do or some of the other livestock species we exist because the industry supports us so mm-hmm. i'm constantly out there um you know so i feel like i'm on a campaign stump all the time saying okay this is why we are important here's what we do for you and we need you to join and be a member or be a sponsor or help contribute to the economic impact study or the other things we're doing because if we don't have the funding from our industry to do this we can't do the work that we do um, and it's unfortunate. I don't like to scare people, but I say, you don't know how much you need us until you need us, mm. but you don't want to wait <laughs> to discover you need us because we've got a lot of legwork to do before the issue really hits the fan. You yep. got to build up to it. So those are some of the challenges, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, it's one, it's one of those things that it's like really hard because you have, it's such a big industry that and folks don't realize that you're fighting for them on the hill until you're not right mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. it's like wait why did this happen oh mm-hmm. there was no one to 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 speak on your behalf <laughs> yeah um i i also explained to folks that um at any given time we're monitoring oh, over 100 pieces of legislation some oh. of them will never get any legs and go anywhere so we don't spend a lot of time on them but we do kind of keep our ear to the ground but we generally have somewhere in the neighborhood of about I'm going to say 20 or 25 pieces of legislation that that we're really working on hard. Yeah. Um, and and that's a lot for my little staff. How many folks uh, are in your staff? So there's a so it it varies. Uh, yeah. But right now there are um, six of us. Not all of us are full, not all are full time, but there's six. Um, and then we have an internship program, um, which helps us because we get some great students in to help do some research projects. Um, and we do um, outsource and contract um, some other pieces of work. We try to stick with what we know best. So, um, you know, I don't have uh, an accountant or an auditor or an attorney or, you know, a, a laundry list of of those kinds of resources because I just outsource all that work and we stick with what we do. Okay. Yeah. No, that's that's awesome. And that makes sense. Double down on your strengths. Yep. Uh, allows you to move a little faster. So t- tell me a little bit about how you prioritize these pieces of legislation. Like what, what comes to, to the top of the priority? Like how, how does it get there? Uh, how do you choose it? That's interesting. So um, it's, it's, it's a complicated process for sure. Um, yeah. What I would generally say we do is we look at some a particular topic and we decide if that topic is going to positively affect 
the majority, the vast majority of the of the stakeholders, the industry. So a really big one for us right now is estate taxes. And the reason for that is because so many family farms are inherited that we really need some relief on estate taxes because we won't be able to people to be able to maintain their family farms. And that cuts across all sectors. Doesn't matter if you're in racing or whatever breeder discipline you're in. So that's one of our top ones. I mentioned immigration before because we all need those workers. So we really work a lot on that. Um, so there's there's just a, a couple of the um, of key points that we see that are threads that run across all the various disciplines and all the various sectors of the industry. And those are the ones we try to pull that thread really hard. And then there's others that we work on that are a little more selective um, that we, we really try to um, hone in on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And, I, and obviously, like something that's going to be super helpful for for horse owners and folks who do um, just like who do inherit farms. I was talking to someone not too long ago about that. And it's like, it's crazy. These folks that have these awesome ranches, farms, little ones in the middle of the city. And you're like, wow, this is crazy. Like you still mm-hmm. have it. So it's awesome. Um, now, I'm, I'm, I'll, oh, I'll add one other thing. So your listeners know, um, we, we, our sweet spot is federal stuff. That's what we do. You know, stuff that's, that's here in DC, but it also means that we keep an ear to the ground on things that happen in the state or local levels. And the reason is because sometimes you'll have something that happens at a state level or at a local level that will get legs. And once it's gotten any traction there, then it gets replicated across the country. So we really have to sometimes go after a few of those things and really work on them. And a great example is um, there's a couple of places in California that have been really um, pushing to ban rodeos. So we, of course, are have members that are part of the Professional Rodeo Cowboy Association and involved with rodeos, that kind of thing. So we work on that. But if you actually go and you read the language of what they were trying to, to uh, pass, it not only bans rodeos, but it bans the use of any kind of spur, fixed spur, rouse spur, any kind of spur. Well, that affects every discipline. Um, and guess what? The Olympics are coming to Los Angeles before too long. We couldn't even have some of the equestrian sports in Los Angeles if this kind of legislation were to pass there because you wouldn't be able to wear spurs. So um, we we just take a we have to look really hard at a couple of pieces of those kinds of um, state or local legislation to say, okay, what what's the likelihood that this could gain traction and it could move further? And do we need to get involved um, somewhere like that early on? And so we write letters and we do some things like that. When we wow. see something like that, wow! No, that's that's really interesting, and the the ability for you to like hone in and keep your ears to the ground on those local and and even state issues is amazing. With the with the staff, of, well, the staff, <laughs> not, not even not even full time. Um, one of the challenges I I hear often recently is uh, the challenges of like not having enough equine vets, uh, oh. veterinarians. Is I yeah, I like your reaction. Like, what, what do you? What do you think about it? Like, how, how, how can we yeah. solve this? So the the um, American Veterinary Medical Association and the American Association of Equine Practitioners has done some in-depth research. And yes, we are struggling with a veterinary shortage. And it's not on the horizon. It's here now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they're putting together some programs and some mentorships and some things to try to help with that. Um, I, I heard a statistic recently that said the majority of large animal vets that come up out, out of the equine uh, veterinary school, uh, they go into, um, they come out with a lot of student debt. 
They go, they can't afford to go into private practice. Um, so they have to join a large practice. Sometimes that large practice means they work an amazing amount of hours in their own call. And it just becomes so physically exhausting and emotionally exhausting um, that after five years, 50% of those exit large animal veterinary practices and go into small animal practices. But then the ABMA tells us that they are also seeing a downward trend in the number of veterinarians they have. So it's a real issue. It's something that we're all really working on. Um, I'm going to do, the American Horse Council does a podcast once a month on horses uh, in the morning radio network. And we're going to be doing a feature uh, coming up in one of our episodes about the veterinary shortage. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that. Um, We are supporting a component in the farm bill this year um, that has to do with veterinary medicine loan repayment plans. And what that does is it encourages and provides some um, financial relief to veterinarians that go into rural communities because that's where we're seeing the least number of veterinarians right now. Um, so we're 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 really hoping that that'll help a little bit too. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really important. I've heard stories of folks who have to drive six hours <laughs> just to get to a equine vet, you know. And it's like by the time if your horse has colic, by the time you get there. You know, it's just a matter of turning around at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. No, that's that's so interesting. Let's um, what else? Like what other what questions haven't I asked you that, you know, you want to talk about or, or let some folks know uh, before well, we um, move into the rapid fire question? Yeah. So um, one of the things I'd love for your listeners to know is that um, for many years now, um, the American Horse Council has been responsible for a program called the United Horse Coalition. That is a resource for um, owners that find themselves in difficult circumstances and they feel um, that they can no longer keep their horse and they might have to relinquish it to a rescue or a sanctuary. And we want to prevent that. We want them to be able to keep their horses. So if you go to United Horse Coalition's website, there is a resource database and you can put in your zip code and it will tell you where you can find feed coupons and hay banks and vet assistance and all kinds of um, Um, gelding clinics, euthanasia clinics, all kinds of resources that are out there for the average horse owner who suddenly discovers they need a little help. Um, So I really want to encourage your your listeners to take advantage of that if they find themselves in those kinds of situations. That's awesome. Thank you so much, especially uh, this year with a, there's like a big hay shortage. So Mm -hmm. um, yes, we've heard all about it. (laughs) I'm sure, I'm sure you have. It's, it's, it's interesting how, you know, it, it really affects everyone and everything that that folks can do with with livestock. It's crazy. The other thing I would suggest, if your listeners aren't familiar with it, they should be get familiar with the Equine Disease Communication Center. That's another project that we work really closely with the Association of Equine Practitioners on. Um, this is a way that we track um, disease outbreaks in the the horse population. So if you're moving your horse uh, from one place to another, or you're going to a competition, you want to go out there, you want to check it out. You want to see if you are going to be going somewhere, if you're going to lay over somewhere on the way to a horse show or a polo match, uh, you want to make certain that there's not a disease outbreak that you're going to expose your horses to. So we've been talking a lot and trying to educate people about how we need to be very mindful of do disease mitigation, uh, think more about biosecurity, think uh, more about exposure. We had a fascinating um, presentation at our conference this year that's about how climate change 
is affecting the vectors that cause disease. So those uh, mosquitoes, those ticks, those various things. Well, climate change is causing um, things that once were diseases you saw only in the far south, like in Texas. We're seeing them now in Virginia because the, the heat has risen. And so those vectors have the chance to thrive more in those more northern climates. So we're really trying to help people understand that there's a lot of things at play right now as it relates to disease mitigation. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you for shouting both of those out. Those are really important. And it's like, well, you don't want uh, equine COVID to happen either, right? So no, uh, no. <laughs> that would be the worst. And we do um, we do ship a lot of horses in and out of our country. And we spend a lot of time trying to make certain that when horses come into the country, they're tested and that they don't bring something in that, you know, we don't. Uh, we don't have as a, um, a normal disease in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. because some diseases that could get in here um, are quite devastating. I mean, it could really affect the overall herd health in a quick way. Yeah. Wow. So tell us a little bit about how we can support the American Horse Council. The last, uh, the, where can we find you? How can we get in contact with you? Yep. So go to our website. It's just horsecouncil.org. Um, think about joining as a member. Um, individual membership is only $60 a year. And for that, you get all these m- monthly newsletters, you get all kinds of information and that kind of stuff. So it, it's, I think, a good deal <laughs> myself. Um, so there's lots of possibilities there. Um, if you have other listeners that are that are interested, um, we do a whole series on taxes and tax bulletins and tax webinars. And those are really more for the small business owners. And that's $100 a year. So it's relatively inexpensive to be a member um, of the Horse Council. But also, we would really encourage people to you know just support us and support some of the research work we're doing. Um, the United Horse Coalition, we fundraise for it. We fundraise for the Economic Impact Study. We fundraise for um, our equine welfare uh, data collective, which is a research project that we're doing. Um, so all those things just take dollars. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it's a, it's actually even a hundred dollars a year, a small price to pay for the amount of benefit and value that the American horse council creates for the horse industry. Like it doesn't, it, the fact that y'all are out there, a, a SWAT team of six, you know, fighting <laughs> for all of us, I'm still just so impressed by that small number. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's um, something that, you know, you don't want to find out what happens if we don't have y'all there. So yeah, yeah. Um, really, really, really small price to pay. Um, but awesome. I have a couple or just a few rapid fire questions. I haven't <laughs> done in a while, but I thought it would be fun to, to do them with you. So do you have a favorite horse you've ever ridden? Yes, I do. I'm so I was really fortunate a couple of years ago um, to acquire a horse called Clay Hill Affirmative. His barn name was Mouse. Uh, he was an English pleasure horse, and I was able to ride him, and I won a reserve world championship uh, with him. And uh, he was just a pleasure, a really smart horse who knew what his job was, and I just had to stay out of his way as a rider, and he was a lot of fun. Oh, those are the best. There's these bubble ponies sometimes that you get that, like, know to follow the ball. They, like, I don't know how they learned it, but they just know <laughs> that if they follow the ball, they're doing the right thing. And oh, those are the best. So I, I understand like when a horse gets it, they get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite place you've ever ridden uh, horses? 
Yeah. So um, I have two favorites. Um, I was really fortunate. It's been, oh God, 20 years ago, probably um, to go with some friends to Puerto Rico and we rode horses out on the beach. And that was a lot of fun, a, a very different experience, you know, kind of thing. You don't yeah. get to do that a lot here in the U.S. So that, that was yeah. really neat. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've been lucky. Um, I spent, you know, as you said, at the Morgan Horse Association, I spent almost 10 years in Vermont and Vermont is a beautiful country. I'm sorry they're flooded so badly right now. Um, but it's a beautiful place to go trail riding and to go out and, and especially in the fall when the leaves change up there. It's really, oh, it's really, I can really nice. Imagine. That must yeah. be beautiful. Wow. I've, uh, that's, that's awesome. I, I hadn't thought about Vermont. Um, and then what makes horses special to you? Well, um, you know, I, I've often said, um, that for whatever reason, um, horses just really resonated with me as a child. Um, you know, I really, um, didn't um, get into team sports. And so this was the one individual sport, you know, that that I, I could really excel at. Um, and there's always something challenging about horses. You never know enough. You know, you're always trying to learn something new and always try something new. And every horse is different, which also makes it fun. Um, yeah. So it, that's that's really a, a piece of what makes it special. But um, I, when I took the job um, at the American Horse Council, I told them that, you know, horses have just enriched my life so much that this was my chance to give something back uh, to the industry and to the to the horses, because I really think that they've made such a difference. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on here, Julie, and uh, sharing a little bit about what you do and uh, what the American Horse Council does. It's so important and I really appreciate your time. I know it's so valuable. Yeah, well, so I'm also going to tell your your listeners, anybody that wants to reach out to me, by all means, drop me an email. It's just jbroadway at horsecouncil.org, and I'll get back to you. Even if I don't know the answer to your question, I might have to do a little research, but I'll get back to you. Uh, and um, thank you so much again, Gideon, for the time and the opportunity. And uh, we'd love to have you, maybe. I'd love to interview you on our podcast. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm open to it. That'd be fun. 